All right, for the rest of you, if you would, go ahead and turn your Bible to the book of James, chapter 3. We're now in our seventh week in this series, and we have five left. So that gives you some light at the end of the tunnel, okay? This is not going to be a a two-year-long series or anything like that. Uh, And actually, I'm already preparing for what's coming after Easter. Last night, I was going through and outlining uh, the next book of the Bible we're going to go through. I'm really excited for that. Uh, it will take us all the way from April to August, and that's, uh, that's the book of Zechariah. When we really look at the world around us today, a lot of people have questions about prophecy, and Zechariah is one of those books that gets overlooked when it comes to the last days. And so uh, we're going to spend pretty much the spring and the summer looking at the future. So that's kind of something I, I think we can be excited about. Uh, but as it is right now, we're in the book of James, and the title of the series for, for James is Together. When James was writing to the churches, he was writing to Jewish Christians, the very earliest of the early church, and he was telling them how to operate as a church, how to operate together. The church was to be unified. The church was to uh, work in a way that they were sharing the gospel. They were, they were sharing this among the Gentiles with whom they lived, but also when they came together, how they were to function as a body. And so we've been looking at this, like I said, for about seven weeks now. And today we're looking at the topic of wisdom and peace. How wisdom and peace work together. How the wisdom of God differs from the wisdom of the world and the effects of godly wisdom within the people of God. So if you will, read along with me, beginning in verse 13. James writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father God, this morning as we dive into your word, I pray once again your Holy Spirit be ever present, that it pierce our hearts that it speak to us, that we not reject the message of the Lord, but receive it, receive it with gladness, and receive it with conviction as needed, Father. We ask this in the name of the Son, amen. If we really look at this text, and it's much shorter than than last week's passage, but it's just as deep and if we really look at it, the, the overall message really tells us that godly wisdom brings peace. In fact, that's the one thing, if you take nothing else home with you today, godly wisdom brings peace. Peace is kind of one of those things we talk a lot about, but we really don't know how to make it. We don't know how to get it. We don't know how to work towards that. And James says, by operating with godly wisdom. Well, what does godly wisdom look like? 
And how do we get there? How do we get godly wisdom? We kind of talked about that in one of the first weeks. We receive wisdom as we go through trials and tribulations and things of that sort. But how do we get to the point where our godly wisdom is bringing us peace? We look around the world today, look around our country, look at various churches, and there isn't a lot of peace in the church today, is there? In fact, every few weeks you can turn on your YouTube or your TV and you can see a a pastor or a church just embroiled in controversy and all sorts of problems. There's, There's always somebody, it seems like, there's no shortage of those who would bring shame upon the body of Christ. These types of problems in the church actually go beyond just getting it wrong or making a mistake. I'm talking, of course, about moral failures, church splits, infighting, divisions, factions. These things plague the church today. So we have to ask, how do we, here at Faith Assembly of God, how do we rise above that? How do we immunize ourselves against such things? Next week, we're going to look at quarrels among Christians, and we're going to really begin to dig a little deeper at pride and things like that. But this week, today, we should prepare ourselves for peace. We have to be willing, as we do this, to discern our position, who we are, where we are, what we do in the church. Then be willing to destroy our own pride and be willing to do these things if we ever hope to distribute peace. Pride. Pride is the killer. That is a poison within so many churches, so many pulpits today. But for today, we should know that godly wisdom truly does bring peace. The first thing we have to do is discern our position. So discern positions. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show this by his good conduct, his good works, and the gentleness of wisdom. James is not asking the typical rhetorical question here. He doesn't really expect an answer, but if he does, he wants to see it in action. When he says, who among you, when we hear the question, many of us would want to say, me. I'm that guy. Right? Our our pride makes us want to answer his question, but the thing is, he's not really asking a question. He's issuing a challenge He expects the answer not in words, but in actions. He's not asking for volunteers. He's not asking for someone to stand up. Who among you is wise and understanding? And something we're going to see in James quite a bit is he likes to use the same words over and over as he dwells and, and makes the point over and over. And one of the ways he does this here is this word wise. We saw it in chapter 1. Wisdom is sophias. But here, the tense of the word is sophos in the Greek, and it's wise. What does that really mean? Well, it means to be skillful, to have accumulated knowledge, to have discernment. It's the same word the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 1, interestingly. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the corruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man. The truth is we should be very careful when we profess ourselves to be wise. 
We all hear this, and the pride inside of us wants to say, well, I have wisdom. I'm wise. I've had experiences. I know what I'm talking about. And to an extent, that may be true. But do we understand the scope of what James is really asking here? What's the context of this wisdom? James is not asking, do you know how to lead? He's not saying, does anybody here think they know everything? What he's asking is, do you know the difference between what is right and what is almost right? Are you able to see the red flags when they appear? Even as I type this message, I, I got a text from a very dear friend from Indianapolis and asked me about a certain teaching. They'd hired this new pastor on staff and he was teaching them a special way to pray and a way to read their Bible. This new teaching that's really rooted in old things. And long story short, they're in the middle of a massive church split because even the lead pastor has been sucked into occult practices, literally preaching a doctrine of demons. That's what he means by wise. Are you discerning? Are you watching out for these things? Who among the church is wise? I was proud of my friend, by the way. She's not the type of person to push back and, and frankly, not the type to typically pick up on some of this stuff. But she, she knew, she said, Jeff, I know you pay attention to these things. Can you help me out? Who among you is wise and understanding? Understanding comes from the Greek word epistemon, and it means that they're learned. Someone who has the aptitude or the ability to learn. And then to take that learning and apply it to living. Nobody in the church should say, well, that's not me. I'm not a smart person. That's not what he's saying. Well, I don't have a degree. I don't have a college degree. I don't have a GED. That, that's not what he's asking. What he's asking is, are you able to hear teaching, hear preaching, and then apply it to your life? He's asking, are you somebody who comes to church on Sunday and hears the message and thinks, now how do I institute this as I live out every day? There's not a person in the church. There's not a Christian who should say that doesn't apply to me. We should all be trying, striving for that because it's not a brain issue, it's a heart issue. This word really only appears here in the New Testament. It's the only time any of the Greek writers will use it, but it does appear in the Greek translation of the Old Testament we call the Septuagint, and it appears in Daniel, of all places, Daniel chapter 10, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 10 Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And when you look it up in the Hebrew, Daniel is using the Hebrew equivalent, yea, being you, and it, he's giving a prophetic message about the last days, the days I believe we are living in in this moment, right now, where there are those who will be deceived, those who will be misled, those who, as Paul describes, are carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He warns to Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. 
Epistemon understanding that James is referring to here is one understanding that yearns for truth. Truth regardless of the cost. Regardless of the fads. Regardless of the trends. It's not a truth that's defined by a man or by any spirit, but by the Holy Spirit. It's the truth of the word of God. That God breathes scripture profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for teaching, sorry, training in righteousness, so the man of God may be equipped, having thoroughly been equipped for every good work. What James is really asking the church here this morning and what he's asking the early Jewish Christians Is there anyone in the church who's willing to learn, willing to study, willing to be taught, willing to mature and grow, not just in their faith, but in their knowledge of God? Because the more knowledge of God that is built up within us, the more our faith can be built upon that knowledge. And therefore, James will conclude the person should, if they are truly wise, if they are truly understanding, that person has to show it. In short, what James is really asking here, he's saying, who among you, who in your church is a mature believer, let him show it. Let him act like it. Now many of us, and I admit even myself, as I was reading this, I wanted to go, well, I I can do that. That's me. I mean, after all, I'm the pastor. I should be a mature believer, right? Our pride loves this question. Ooh, 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 me, me, I I can do it, James, right? Don't be too quick. Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. Wait a second, maybe I don't want to do that. Can we do the, right? This is the ultimate show and tell, as one writer put it. Wisdom is not measured by degrees on your wall. It is measured by deeds you've done. Understanding is not revealed by grades or lectures or lessons learned. It is revealed by your gentleness and your love. It's not how well you've read the Bible. It's about how well you understood the Bible and live out what it tells us. You know, people can memorize Scripture word for word, but if their life is filled with all kinds of bitterness, all kinds of hatred, all kinds of malice, all kinds of envy, and especially pride, what good is is it? It's just words. It's like reciting a Chinese menu. Good job. You can say the right things the right way and and maybe even get your crab rangoon, but what use is it really? That's what James said a while back. He said, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And again, the answer is no. No, it can't. The good conduct, the word in the original language for good conduct, I won't try to pronounce it, but it means a morally excellent manner of controlling oneself. Self-control. Controlling their way of life. This is displayed in the gentleness of wisdom or protete sophias, the humility of the truly wise. I quoted this last week, and I'll quote it many times again, I think, but 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. I think this is one of the greatest challenges for pastors 
Pastors who truly do love and care for their congregations. I know I've fallen into this many times and I've had to course correct and apologize and repent. You see, the problem many pastors make is we want the church to keep up with us. A good friend of mine reminded me of that. You know, I get a lot more time in the word, a lot more time in study than many of you do. And for me, it's like, well, this makes sense. Well, it ought to. That's what I do every day. I don't work a full-time job outside of the church, thankfully. And even if I did, I've dedicated most of my life to studying Scripture. So many pastors have. And when they lead the church and they, they come in, they, they expect the church to be able just to hit the ground running with them, right? Oftentimes, we pastors, we, we run ahead and then we look back and wonder why the congregation is still standing where we, where we left them. It's interesting, the word pastor. It comes from the Greek poimenos. It means shepherd. And if a shepherd constantly runs ahead of the sheep and is yelling back, hey guys, come on, come on, keep up with me. That's how you call a dog. That's not how you shepherd a flock. If you really study it, the shepherd helps drive and guide the flock and therefore takes, should take his time, walk behind and help push in the right direction bring correction where it has to be, comfort where fitting, and bring the flock back together where it needs to be as well. If a sheep wanders off after a butterfly or something shiny, that's why the shepherd's staff has that hook to grab them. It's not comfortable for the sheep. It's not easy for the shepherd, but to pull them back in line. And if a, she if a sheep is hurting the others, have the wisdom to know to separate them for a while until there can be healing and they can behave around the other sheep. Sometimes it gets taught and preached that if a sheep is slowing the herd down or likes to run away and the pastor keeps going after that sheep, that he has to break the sheep's leg. That's not historically accurate. And it never made sense to me. Because the idea is you want a healthy flock, not one you're constantly having to nurse back to health. A good shepherd tries to cultivate that, tries to bring unity, tries to bring peace. And it takes time. And maybe I don't say all of that for your benefit this morning. Maybe I'm just saying it for mine. But we often need to be reminded of that. Because this is what Christ does for us. Christ is our good shepherd. He's the head shepherd. He's the head of the church. And if there are those within the church who feel that frustration, why can't everyone be on the same page? Why can't this person get it, whatever it might be, James reminds us, slow down, show some wisdom and understanding with gentleness. And that's not easy to do sometimes. But sometimes that wisdom we have, sometimes that understanding we have is not a godly wisdom or understanding and therefore it's misguided. So we, we have to discern our position on such things. We read again in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You know, there are many in the world today who have wisdom. There are many in the world today who have discernment. It's not godly wisdom. It's not godly discernment. They use it for their own advancement. Whether that's in the business world or what have you. But their motivation, their true motivation, is not from a love for the Lord, but often in getting ahead. 
I think that's what James means when he says bitter jealousy. The Greek word is zelon pikron. It means a hostile greed or a zealous animosity. It's a, it's a hateful way to long after what somebody else has. Their motivation comes from just trying to advance themselves, no matter the cost. One commentator said this. They said, selfish ambition is a divisive willingness to split the group in order to achieve personal power and prestige. It's the same word Paul uses in Galatians 5.20. Not the fruit of the Spirit, but as he's listing the fruit of the flesh in opposition to the Spirit. He uses it elsewhere in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. The ESV doesn't translate it selfish ambition. I think it gets a little better. It says rivalry. It shouldn't exist in the church. It has no place in a body of believers. In fact, it destroys churches. In in his book, A Tale of Three Kings, Gene Edwards puts it this way, I find it curious that men who feel qualified to split God's kingdom do not feel capable of going somewhere else to another land to raise up a completely new kingdom. No, they must steal from another leader. I've never seen the exception. They seem always to need at least a few prepackaged followers. They feel qualified because they feel they have the right understanding and wisdom. The point James is making is that when they act this way, and when we act this way, when we do these things for the advancement of self, rather than the advancement of Christ, we are lying against the truth. And in a sense, we are denying the reality that God has established. We're making ourselves an enemy of peace. Denial of truth means failing to practice biblical discernment instead of Tolerating every wind of doctrine, every type of teaching, every latest fad movement, or embracing even the worldly or occult practices. Well, it works for this other church, is usually the excuse we hear. Define worked. Did it get numbers? Did people actually get saved? Is there really fruit? You hear people say things like, I know a guy who prayed this certain prayer, and and then he had a, a check in the mail for the exact right amount. One thing that was trending on social media a while back, a few years ago, was pay your tithes, get good buys. The very wording exhibits a rivalry, whether it means to or not. It's that get ahead. We've got the secret power, the secret code to unlock rich riches. And what we have, if that's us, is not wisdom or understanding, but a jealousy a craving for worldly things, a selfish ambition. So we have to ask that hard question. Discern our position. Is my wisdom, is my understanding fueled by the flesh? Because that will just bring destruction. But if it's godly wisdom, it should not bring conflict, rivalry, but peace. And once we have truly discerned our position, well, the next act is the the harder part. That's when we have to destroy our pride when I say destroy our pride, I hope you understand me this morning. I'm, there are things you can be proud of, and it's okay. It's not a sin. I'm proud of my kids. I'm proud of, of myself when I put in a hard day's work. I'm proud of my wife and, and, and her job and the way she helps me run the house and, and what she does in the church. I'm proud of my dad for achievements he's done. That's, that's fine. You can do those things. But it's when that pride becomes... An idol. 
when I have to have my way, I'm jealous or ambitious to the point it's unhealthy. Well, then it's not wisdom, it's unwise arrogance. When you meet people and every conversation has to be a competition, that's pride. That's an unhealthy pride. When every thought has to be shared, it doesn't have to, by the way. In a sense, it's, it's like social media in person. <laughs> That's kind of the pride James is referring to. So we read on in verse 15, this wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. You see that escalator of analogy that he likes to employ, James but he starts out, this wisdom is not coming down from above. Can you look at that in your Bible again? This wisdom is not coming down from above. And he's referring, of course, back to chapter 1 when he said, every good thing given, every perfect gift is, what? From above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Wisdom that comes from God is not self-serving, but humble, gentle, loving. James draws a contrast with the earthly, fleshly wisdom. And he takes it from bad to worse. He says it's earthly, then he says it's natural, and then it's even demonic. Remember how he spoke about the tongue. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. Here James is showing a similar progression. Because our tongue speaks out the wisdom that's in our heart. That's what it does. It's earthly. It means it's worldly. It may be respected by the world, but that's as far as it'll ever get. It's temporary. It's limited. It's natural. When he says it's natural, he means that's unspiritual. It's human in its origin, and therefore it's like the human who created it. It's frail, flash, uh, fleshly, unsanctified, unredeemed. He goes on to say it's even demonic. Its true source is Satan's forces coming from hell itself. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, The natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. A person who is earthly, natural, they're not going to get these things. A man of such wisdom cannot, will not comprehend the wisdom that comes from God. We see this in our lives, when we, as Christians, when we persevere, it's the world who's saying, why don't you just give up? Why don't you just quit? You keep banging your head against the wall. Stop it. And the Christian says, no, I have to be obedient. When the Christian gives, whether that's love, time, financial, whatever, the world says, why are you giving? You should be taking. When the Christian loves, the world who says, why aren't you bitter? How can you forgive them? Do you know what they did to you? And yet we say, I forgive because I have been forgiven much. It seems right to them, but it is not right to the believer, to those who are under the grace of the cross. Envy, strife, hurt, chaos, 
These are all clear indicators that someone's wisdom is not from above. When we discern things, we have to ask and, and seek a peaceable kind of way of understanding. A truly wise person does not want credit, but shares the credit. Years ago, I read this book by Rod Loy about leadership, and, and in it, one of the things he says is a good leader shares the credit for the victory, but a great leader takes the credit for the loss by himself. We see this in football. I know some of you don't like the NFL, but bear with me on this, okay? We see this in NFL quarterbacks, the good ones, okay? The ones who are usually successful, who are locker room leaders, they go to the press conference and when they win, they say things like this, well, the offensive line held up today. Our defense really came through. The running back was seeing holes that, to run through that I didn't even know existed. We did, they, they did such a great job. But when they fail, the quarterback says, I got to do better. I got to get the ball out of my hand and into the receiver's hands. I got to read the defense. I got to spend more time in the film room. That's what a real leader does. They take all the blame on themselves. And you know the bizarre irony is we see more godly wisdom in that NFL locker room than we do in many churches. When the pastor fails, well, it's not his fault. Let's point the finger. Let's find a scapegoat. Ministry didn't work out. We wanted it to succeed. Well, why did it fail? Well, because all these people didn't show up. We've all done it. I know I have. It's only natural. It's only worldly. But that's what James is warning us of. It's not wisdom coming down from above. It's earthly. It's natural. James goes an extra step, though. He says it's even demonic. And you've got to ask, well, why would he say that? How can he say that? That's harsh. Does he say it because it has its roots in pride? After all, we all know Satan was the one who said, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the Most High. It's Isaiah 14, 14. We believe that's referring to him. So there's possibly, and there probably is some truth to that. That's probably a big reason why James says it. But I think if we look a little closer, we're going to understand the full scope of his meaning. You see, this type of wisdom often catches on, and it seems right. It seems good, even in the church. Oh, so-and-so has such insight. They really know what they're doing. They've always got the right words to say, but it's jealousy and selfish ambition that drive them. And confusion and chaos will follow them. It seems right, but why is there so much wrong surrounding it? Why is it so destructive in the church? Why is there a check in my spirit about it? Why doesn't it just seem to mesh perfectly with Scripture? Well, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul says. Therefore, it's not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. You understand what he's saying is when pride is really our motivator and what seems like wisdom is appealing, we begin to invite that which is wrong and it becomes divisive and then destructive, not just in our own personal lives, but in the church itself. So we discern our position. We have to ask, is this me? And we're needed, destroy that pride. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, James writes, there is disorder in every evil practice. That's verse 16. Look at it again. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. Again, I like this. James is being repetitive here. 
Earlier in verse 14, he said, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, but this is where the hammer hits its mark. You understand where that jealousy and selfish ambition exists. Does it exist in our hearts? We have to ask that. We are forced by James, if we are taking him seriously, we are forced to ask that question. What's in my heart? Jeremiah says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick who can know it. Well, God knows our heart. The prayer of David in Psalm 139, he starts the whole thing. He says, oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. And he concludes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. But are we brave enough to pray that prayer? That's a hard question to ask. Am I even capable of asking God to do that? Because here's the thing, sometimes we pray something like that. We don't want to hear or see what the Holy Spirit might kick up. I don't like to feel convicted, Pastor. Preach a softer sermon. Be nicer in how you say it. Sometimes maybe I need to do that. But if we are to grow, we have to get rid of our pride. We fear pride because we don't want to deal with it because humbling ourselves is a heart-wrenching, painful experience. You ever take a dish rag and you, you twist it until it's dry? All that water leaking out? You ever feel bad for the dish rag? But that's your heart when pride is being wrenched out. It really does. It's not an easy thing to do. But again, if we're to grow, and especially if we are to grow together, if we're to go where God wants to lead this church, we have to destroy the unhealthy pride that holds us back. We have to be willing to pray the hard prayers, say the hard things, do the hard tasks, ask the hard questions. And whether we like the answers or not, move forward in the truth. I said next week we're going to look closer at pride and the quarrels and problems that was happening in the early church. But we should be cautious of it even now and begin to root it out in our lives even now if we want real peace. Because to do otherwise, we'd be lying against the truth. We continue in the wisdom of the world then, the natural, not the wisdom God has for us, not the wisdom that brings peace. But we want to, I hope, we want to be people who distribute peace, don't we? We read in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. After all the negative, after all the things James has said, he's kind of hit us hard, hasn't he? And here he gives us a little bit of hope. Here this is a good thing. All those things, those, those horrible things false wisdom might bring, look at the good that comes from godly wisdom. It's first, and that word first is the Greek word proton, not like the subatomic particle, but proton means before anything else. It's not the first thing in the line or a procession. It is the first thing in a progression. It is the origin point from where these other things come. The wisdom from above begins in purity. Wisdom has no alternatives or ulterior motives, no self-serving, self-gratifying, selfish purpose. 
A wisdom that seeks to build others up, seeks to help others, seeks to love others. This is the sort of wisdom that has no flaw and it's beyond questioning. So naturally, it's suspicious, right? The word pure is the Greek word hagni, and it means to be holy, to be without defect. And in a broken world, destroyed and ruined by sin, the idea of holiness, the idea of purity is something to be suspicious of, to be cautious of. We live in a world that mocks the cross, the holiness of the one who gave his life on that cross, that we might become holy. That's suspicious enough when we tell people about that. But when we, his followers, begin to have insight and understanding, and it's from them, they begin to say things like, what's their game? What are they up to over there? What's their motive? They just want me to join their little church, right? Be a part of their little club, Join in their interests. Now sometimes suspicion can be a good thing. Peter uses the same word, pure, purity, hagni. He uses it in 1 Peter 3 when he's talking to wives, Christian wives, and how they are to deal with their non-Christian, their unbelieving husbands. In the same way, you wives be subject to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives as they observe your Pure conduct with fear. You see, the purity of our wisdom and understanding makes us suspicious, makes the lost suspicious, but it also should make them hungry. Hungry enough to want it for themselves, that they may be one, Peter said. The word Peter uses is the same word James uses here. I don't think that's an accident. And what James is saying in this passage ties very closely to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon the world has ever heard. The Sermon on the Mount. The most beautiful preaching the world will ever know. Jesus himself gave that message as he's describing the conduct of his church, in a sense, how we act together. Every Christian should aim for this sort of purity in their life, be Besides holiness, it's, it's a spiritual integrity, a moral sincerity that should motivate us. Christ himself said, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And from this godly wisdom, that type of purity, that is then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. Peaceable means to be whole here, free from worry. It really means peace-loving and peace-promoting. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And to be considerate, or in some translations, it's gentle. It means to be gracious. One translator called it sweet reasonableness. A person who's considerate, as we all should be, will bear all kinds of mistreatment and difficulty with a response that is kind, courteous, humble, with no thought towards revenge or towards hate. Blessed are those who have been persecuted, Jesus said, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. It's only when we're blessed when it's because of Jesus. If people don't like you, maybe you've got a problem, but if it's because of Jesus, you're blessed. 
We're to be submissive, or in other translations, it's open to reason. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says, willing to yield to others. It comes from the word meaning to be obedient or teachable, compliant. In a military sense, it was used to describe someone who submitted themselves to discipline, to legal standards. But for the Christian, for, for us, Christ defines it as those who are obedient to God's standards. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. We're to be full of mercy. It means to show compassion towards those who might offend us. Concern for those who suffer pain and hardship. And being able to forgive quickly. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, for they shall receive mercy. And of course, with mercy comes good fruits. We know good fruits, Galatians 5, 22, 23, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We can always rattle those off as a memory verse, but if we don't have those, we just have words. And we can have none of those if we're not in Christ. He makes this clear in John 15. He's the vine, we're the branches. If we're not connected to the vine, we will not bear his fruit in our lives. Jesus himself said, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather him and cast him into the fire and they're burned. We're to be without doubt. Some translations, it's understood to be impartial or without uncertainty. Really means to cause factions or divisions in a group. It's not, it doesn't mean you doubt the gospel. It doesn't mean you doubt the truth of Christ, the truth of the cross, it's to constantly question in a way to deceive. That's really what that word means. It's a general reminder to be a follower of Christ and not a respecter of persons. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 2. And finally, we're to be without hypocrisy. In other words, we're to be genuine. That's really all that means, to be authentic. You know, if Christianity is a fake it until you make it religion, it is not what Christ intended for it to be. If you think being a Christian is plastering on a smile and, and walking around town like you've got it all together, you don't have Christianity, you have legalism. Please understand me this morning. We do not have it all together. None of us do. All these things James lists, they're characteristics of a mature believer. But we're all going to struggle with those things at times. We should try, we're going to fail. Because we're all broken people, all of us. When people say, I don't want to go to that church, they're full of hypocrites. Yeah. The hospital's full of sick people. You still go there. McDonald's has hungry people. You still eat there. We're broken. And if we cry out, Lord, I know I'm broken. But because of you, because of who you are, because of what you've done on the cross and worked inside my heart, I will try. I will repent and I will follow you. And soon you're not just trying, you're doing. You're maturing. You're growing. Your faith may be weak at first, but it grows. And even though you may have moments of weakness, your faith is real. It's without hypocrisy. That's a turning point for many Christians in their walk, really. They're not perfect. They know that. 
But it's in that moment they can say, I have Christ's peace in my life because I'm going to trust him knowing who I am, knowing what I've done, knowing what I'm capable of. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of righteousness. That's all those things James just listed for us. Purity, then being peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. Those are fruits that we see in our lives. And we take those fruits from our life and we begin to sow the seeds of those fruit in other people's lives. That which gives us peace, we give to others. We sow into the soil of their hearts. Look again at what James says, sown in peace by those who make peace. I want to be a peacemaker. I hope you do too. All those things he lists are good works that grow from the result of salvation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When we are satisfied in him, we're honest about our brokenness. We're not wavering in our faith. We're producing the fruit of the Spirit. We're showing mercy. We're being submissively obedient. We're able to be gentle in spite of our circumstances. We're making and promoting peace with others. And above all, we are pure, seeking to be truly holy, to be truly righteous, not self-righteous. But in humility, we exhibit the godly wisdom that then brings peace. You see how it all flows and connects together this morning. It's not just something we see in our lives, but it's a peace that we give to others. It's a peace that spreads in the body of Christ as we sow it into one another's lives. And yes, there will be people who may reject that. There may be people who won't have it for long, but the peace is there and they're given the opportunity to have the peace of Christ in their life too. And the godly wisdom given to us, we are to bring his peace. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. One of the commentators I've, I've used in, in this study said, Wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. How many of you know there is, how many of you know there is great peace in the will of God? You cannot be in God's will and not know his peace That just means you're not in Christ. But thankfully, Scripture reminds us God gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And today, if you're struggling, if you're watching online or if you're here and you're struggling with that belief, I don't know if I'm in Christ. I don't know if I'm a Christian. Jeff, I don't know if I'm saved. Find a place today to pray Come find me at the front, grab an usher, grab a greeter, grab somebody to pray with you. If you know you should be growing, know you should be maturing, but you seem to have hit a wall and yet you crave peace, find a place to pray this morning. We're going to close and worship, and I would ask that as, as we do, ask the Holy Spirit, what is robbing me of my peace today? And go to the Lord in prayer. And maybe you're here and you are a mature believer, and you've reached that point, then ask the question, Lord, okay, I have your peace. Where should I sow it today? Will you give me opportunity to share you 
today. And then go and sow. But this morning, let's stand together as we close in worship.